0: Hello and welcome to Be the Serpent, a podcast of extremely deep literary merit, with your classy and sophisticated hosts, Alexandra Rowland, Freya Mask, and Jennifer Mace. On today's episode, we're discussing The Goblin Emperor by Catherine Addison, the movie Jupiter Ascending, and Dangerous If Unbound by (laughs) Astolat.
1: Welcome to Episode five, "Oh Captain, My Captain. I'm Alex, the Jupiter-Jones one.
0: I'm Freya, I'm the Anastasia one.
2: I'm Macy, and I'm loyal to Princess Leia.
0: We are three red-headed fantasy authors.
2: And today we're
0: discussing
1: <laughs> Failty and loyalty and some weird BDSM overtones and also literally all of my favourite books, movies, and shows pretty much ever, so that's going to go really well and I'm definitely going to be coherent through all of this episode. It's fine. Hi guys.
0: And I feel that the listeners should know that our actual outline document had a whole section in brackets. For Alex to descend into madness and incoherence. Yep,
1: it said, and today we are discussing dot dot dot, open brackets, immediately descends into madness and incoherence, close brackets.
2: Well, descend implies that you do not live there,
0: Alex. Well, listen, (laughs) you're correct. Anyway. That's alright, I live there as well, it's just Macy who's sitting at the top of this pit waving down on us smugly. I
2: I like doing things smugly, All right. Yes, the,
1: the place of madness and incoherence that freya lives in is also called australia but um i I think that we can blame the spiders for that probably probably so before we get going on stuff uh what are we reading fellow serpents
0: i have been reading uh diana wynne jones's book of essays on writing called reflections and it has filled me again with even more love for diana wynne jones than i thought was possible. I thought I was already full. I was wrong. I actually have not read that
1: Diana Wynne Jones book and I didn't even know it existed, so like this is a beautiful undiscovered treasure.
0: It's good. It's a collection of... some of them are essays that she wrote for particular conventions or for newspapers, some of them are interviews. There's a lot of repetition because she obviously tells the same stories about her childhood and talks about some of her books in a similar way across multiple pieces. But the whole is still really enjoyable and really interesting to read as someone who's read a lot of her works, but not quite all of them.
2: Whereas I myself have been reading my own stuff repeatedly because editing is the worst. And I keep... Jesus, I'm right there with you, girl. I am right there with you. I I read it and then I'm like, oh, I totally have read it and understand what I intend to do with this edit so I can keep editing. And then I promptly fall asleep. And then I have to start again the next day because I'm not smart about this. Just at me next time. (laughs)
1: I finally managed to tear myself away from the person of interest fanfiction at long last. I have been reading a lot of my own work because I too am deep in edits for my book. And also last week I read An Unsuitable Air* by KJ Charles, which I believe is the last KJ Charles book that I had not read. And now I'm all out until she publishes something new. She's fantastic. I love her. Agreed. Yeah. So also... Does anyone perchance have exciting news? Possibly, possibly, possibly. So I may have to edit this out if Freya doesn't get to announce this news by. Are we doing the redacted thing, like the beep beep? yeah. Okay. Yes. Cool. So Freya, what cool news do you have?
0: My cool news is that da 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 da, I have signed with a literary agent. So, yay! yay! After an extremely bizarre and weird querying process, (laughs) which I am not going to tell the story of here.
2: But it was very entertaining for both Alex and myself, and poor Freya. Suffer dog cackling. And we were very smug, and we said
1: you were smug. we told
0: you so many, many times. You were smug and entertained, but I couldn't have done it without you, thank you, servants. Oh, So yes, I have signed with Diana Fox of Fox Literary for the book that I wrote last year, and I too will soon be descending into the hideous pit of edits. But I'm not there just yet.
1: Official edits are a different beast than like edit- editing by yourself. I find that it's a lot more fun and fulfilling. I hope so.
0: I do hope so. Well, does Alex
1: have any exciting news? Alex does have some exciting news. So this episode is going to be going up on the 28th, which means that by the time it goes up, my book cover for A Conspiracy of Truths will have been out in the world for a full week and a half at this point. So yay, if you haven't seen it yet, I know that I'll be posting it on, uh, or I will have been posting it on uh, Twitter and Tumblr and all my social media everywhere. So if by some weird chance you have not yet seen it, please go check it out. It's going to be on Goodreads. Yes, I'm so excited about it. I got to see it yesterday when we are recording this episode and it is so, so, so beautiful. I'm so happy with it. It's completely gorgeous. Yes. (laughs) All right. So that's my exciting news. Enough about me, enough about all of
2: us. Let's talk about some good shit. Yes. Yes, and why were, we, why, why were we naming princesses this week?
0: Because this week we are talking about fealty as a trope. Yes. What's fealty? Did you want to do the content warning first?
1: Oh, yes. Real quick content warning before we go on. We are going to be having some lighthearted discussion of sex and also kinky power exchange in this episode. So if that's not your thing or if you are possibly listening in an environment where you would get in trouble for <laughs> hearing those sorts of things, pause the, pause the episode, my, my good
2: dude, and, and come back to it later.
0: So once again, yes, we're going to define our terms.
2: Are we going to let someone other than Alex define our terms? I think someone other than Alex has to define some terms because Alex is just sitting
0: here vibrating (laughs) with joy. I will define terms. So when we think about fealty, the concept obviously comes from the medieval roots of this idea of a liege lord and a vassal, and fealty is the relationship between those two in which a vassal swears fealty essentially, which is a kind of loyalty and service to the liege lord, and the liege lord make certain agreements of either protection or something else in exchange, but most of it's to do with that relationship that is defined and sworn between those two people. And we're going to be talking a bit about the liege and the vassal as these distinct roles in this relationship. But of course, for something that came from medieval times, it has evolved somewhat in fandom as fandom is wont to do, (laughs) into things more defined as, I suppose, a fealty kink. And I've written down here the idea of King and Lionheart, because I remember a few years ago when that particular song by Of Monsters and Men came out, King and Lionheart was a term that was tossed around fandom. And I actually went to archive of our own to see if there were lots of fics tagged with that particular encapsulation of the fealty kink. It was interesting, I did some searching by tags of... Fealty is not a defined filterable tag yet. There are only 20 fics with that as a tag. Fealty Kink only has six. King and Lionheart has eight. Uh, But Loyalty is the filterable tag, and it has 1,375 fics, which I just held myself back from immediately trawling through and finding the good stuff. But it is obviously a thing that comes up as a trope in uh, fiction and in fandom, and that's why we're going to be talking about. But
2: I think we're going to talk a little bit later about some of our opinions of the difference between loyalty and fealty, right? But I believe that we have a bespoke screaming session from Alex scheduled at this point. Yes, indeed. One of the things that attracts us so strongly to
1: the lord and loyal retainer, or, or the king and vassal relationship, as a romantic trope, is again the hero skamos. I know it always comes back to the <laughs> hero skamos, but I'm your I'm your mythology person, and the hero skamos is one of my favorite things. If you haven't listened to our previous episodes, I will tell you what the hero skamos is. It means sacred marriage, and it is the mythological concept that says that the relationship between the king and the queen is kind of an avatar representative of the relationship between the king and his kingdom. So if the king is good and his, his marriage is happy and prosperous and fruitful, then the king's relationship with the land will be happy and prosperous as well. And the land will flourish and everyone will be joyful and the crops will be abundant. Uh, and the children will all be, be beautiful and bright eyed and only adorably sticky. Rather than <laughs> gross and sticky
2: <laughs> distinct lack of plague with these children <laughs> so
1: so it in, in this uh, trope, instead of the relationship between the king and the queen, it's replaced with the relationship between the king and the vassal. and the vassal is even more an avatar of the land and the kingdom and the people because he is one of the the people, one of the subjects. And so like the way that the king treats this individual subject, is representative of the way that the king treats all of his subjects. Like the vassal is functioning as a representative of the people.
2: And I think I had a thing here about like the difference between glory and sort of glorious goodness, and the shining Arthurian goodness. I think you had a note on courtly love and the note on oh what was the term that we used uh, noble bright versus the sort of humble goodness. And the thing for me about and the way that it gets used particularly in fandom is that there is a degree of humbleness in the liege right? That yes. the liege values and loves and adores in occasionally platonic ways but this is fandom we prefer them to be kissing we prefer them to be kissing but it's not mandatory I disagree I disagree strongly <laughs> <laughs> it's not no 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 Okay. okay we are going to at this point I am going to bring up one of my favorite books, which is one of our tent poles for this episode, which is called The Goblin Emperor by Catherine Addison. And, humble listeners, if you have not read this book, pause. I mean, you don't have to pause, but you should You should buy the book. The book. Get the book from your library. It's an amazing book. your librarian it's... buy five copies it's and a really build a display book. of nothing but this book. Why would you need any book but this book? Why would you need any book but this book? We talk sometimes about, like, a friendly coffee shop au type of fantasy this isn't quite that but it's just so
1: nice it's so nice it's so good it's about like nice people being good and well-meaning and working hard to do good things in the world even though it's like hard and tricky and they're surrounded by people who are not as good and kind as they are
2: but the thing that we have here is this young character who was never meant to be in power, and so has grown up into this kind, thoughtful, humble young man. And suddenly somebody plops a crown on his
0: head, and he's like, what do? Help! I think that's what makes it a very positive narrative, is that in another book, it might be about him becoming more cynical. And he does become more cynical in that he's exposed to a wider range of people and motives and... I guess, evildoing than he has before then, but his own goodness and niceness is such that the fabric of that world bends around him eventually, and that's the hero Scamos.
2: To, to, to me it's that he is his default action is kindness, even to people who don't, according to those around him, merit his attention and what we see is this kind of trailing ducklings of Uh, vassals that just sort of form around him and follow him around worshipfully and he doesn't even notice it happening (laughs) Yes, and it's amazing. I just, the Mm. writing as well, the, the character development of every single individual character, you can parse out exactly why they're doing it and how this noble liege has earned their
0: fealty. You're right in that the humbleness of Maya, the main character, is something that makes this an incredibly powerful narrative but if you think about it from the point of view of the vassals and the way the book is written you never actually get correct me if i'm wrong but you never actually get inside their heads you're, you're only inside maya's head really but you could you can tell as the reader what is going on in their heads and why they have fallen into this duckling line of supporting him and believing in him and you can tell that from their point of view there is almost an element of noble right going on or an element of glory it's just not in a way that they'd thought about it before but they clearly idealize Meyer by the end of it but he himself is so humble and that's what makes it a really powerful depiction of this particular trope
2: but my point is also that it is entirely a satisfying example of a platonic version of this trope
0: well i mean there is some no, no, fiction no. We... okay okay let me clarify myself
2: it is entirely satisfying. You can then extend it if you so choose. I'm not saying it has to be. Okay, fair. Anyway, like, the, the, the point is... Stop cackling at me, Alex. I have not gotten to be incoherent nearly as much as you do, so shouting is now. I can't help it. My point was, it is possible to do this trope, platonically and still have the satisfying journey as a reader which we were talking about in the apocalypse episode right is what a reader is looking for in a piece of fiction and to me the the fealty tropes are about being valued and cradled and adored by a worthy leader right i feel like a lot of the time at least for myself as a reader we put ourselves in the shoes of the vassal a little bit more than the liege that's an interesting question right? I'm thinking about
1: it now and I don't know which of the two positions I am more attracted to I think I kind of default to putting myself in the position of the liege rather than the vassal
2: Ah, maybe it's specifically with Goblin Emperor then that you read any of the passages in which Maya is thinking about Xavet, his first and most loyalist of vassals you <laughs> <laughs> And you just see this adoration, and who wouldn't want to be valued and adored? Yes, I mean, yes. Like, I I love both of those.
1: (laughs) Like, one of the reasons I don't know which position I put myself in is because they're both so, like, emotionally attractive, like, in my heartfelt parts. Because, like, yes, you want to be the vassal because who wouldn't want to both, like devote yourself to someone who you knew was good and worthy and kind and who you could trust to be making the right decisions. And in return... Goblin Emperor. Goblin Emperor, right. And in return, getting to be adored and cherished and valued and that you know in your heart that you are precious to this person. And also, like as the liege, it's wonderful to be able to value and cherish someone like that. And it's also humbling to be given this gift of
2: trust.
0: Yes. I was going to say Goblin Emperor does this in a very balanced way because even though you are in Maya's head, you're seeing all his good parts in a way that would make you think, yes, I would, I would feel the same way if I was Sevet or if I was one of the other retainers in his life because he's so good and nice. Well, Also, I suppose it depends on whether you I can identify with Maya or not. And he is a very sympathetic character, but I remember when I was reading it, it was one of the few books that I deeply, deeply enjoyed, despite not really identifying with the main character at all, because I'm not that kind of person. Hmm. So when I was reading it as a fealty narrative, you could appreciate someone like the the loyalty of someone like Sevett, but at the same time, because I don't, because I identified more with Sevett than with Maya, I enjoyed the vassal side of that relationship more. And there's some books that do that more overtly. I'm going to mention Megan Whalen Turner's Queen's Thief series again, where the King of Atolia is essentially the same journey. It's a fealty journey of uh, quite literal a vassal discovering the worthiness of his king and going through this transformation from unwilling subject to adoring, <laughs> really believing in his king and being prepared to die for him. And that's you're in the point of view of the vassal there, so it's even more overt. But for me, I think it depends on what well, the story that's being told, mm-hmm. who's telling the story and which character I'm the most feeling the most linked to as it's told.
2: That makes sense. I think there's also a couple of different liege narratives that I, I see and maybe you all think of, can think of some more, but there's the liege growing into their power. And then there's the the powerful liege, but the, uh, they're gathering vassals or they're figuring out something plot-like, mm. right? So it's a little bit different because I think, and I haven't read it, but from what you were saying to me in Megan Whelan-Turner's books, it sounded like the liege was kind of established.
0: Yes, by the third book, he's, that character, the liege character is still going through struggles and journeys, but from the point of view of the vassal, that's not, that's not particularly important like being reminded of the leisure's vulnerability and human nature is but yes he's established as the king we know that he's a very impressive person in his own way the fun is the journey of this person who doesn't know him who is coming to know him
2: whereas i just got done watching bits of our second tentpole if, if y'all don't mind if i bring that one up yes 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 okay please, yes. this movie the movie alex Oh, it wasn't the one that I thought that you were talking about, but I am equally
1: excited about no, this one. No,
2: yes, because we we rearranged our we rearranged our ordering. You left the Ravenclaws alone in a room. I'm sorry. Um, well,
1: good. I mean, like, I'm excited about all of these, so I don't really mind which order we talk about them in. So it's all good with me. The movie is the best movie. It, okay, it's not the best movie in the entire it world. Not, it's not the best movie. It's the, it's the best movie for me. It's not a perfect movie, but it's the perfect movie for me. It is Jupiter Ascending, and I will not hear a negative word spoken against this movie. Oh,
2: it's so beautiful. Is it's the thing. Perfect. I forgot how beautiful it was until the scene. With the giant spaceship cruising through the galaxy as the spoilt air swims in an infinity pool on the edge of the universe.
1: Honestly, like, this movie is proof. This movie is proof that. Okay, I'm speaking as a writer here. This movie is proof that you do not have to hire a writer as long as your (laughs) glitter budget is (laughs) substantial (laughs) enough.
0: And as long as you can persuade some very attractive, very brave actors to just whisper-yell the worst dialogue in the world with great, great dedication. I don't care. Dedication. <laughs>
2: anyway, it's so good. Jupiter Ascending. Uh, Jupiter and Jupiter Ascending is exactly the same liege journey that Maya in Goblin Emperor goes on, right? She starts as a cleaner in Chicago who has no idea about the fact that she's royalty until some bees tell her that she is, which is an important part of the movie, people. Bees... <laughs> are genetically engineered to detect royalty. I love this film. But over the course of the film, she comes into her own power, which is really what we're talking about with a liege journey. There's a particular kind of interpersonal dynamic, I think, that we're talking about when we say the word liege. And it is this very powerful thing that you have to learn how to wield. And she does. And it's also interesting because I didn't realize this until I rewatched, but there are four lieges. In Jupiter Ascent.
1: There's her, there's the Balaam with the shiny cloak. There is Balaam's sister, whose name I forgot, mm-hmm. with the purple dress.
2: Jacques something. And there's, yeah. okay, so it's her and the three siblings, right? Yes, it's her and the three siblings. And you do kind of get to watch them be very different leisures.
0: And you get to see the people who serve them have responses to the their orders yes. or to the fact that they are in service that show you that these three siblings are lesser, that they are not worthy leisures, and they're not worthy of the power that's been placed in their hands in the same way that Jupiter is, even though it's never actually pointed out quite that explicitly.
2: But you see each of them manipulating and lying and managing yes. their liege, And you notice that people help the,
1: the siblings because they have to. People help Jupiter because they want to.
0: <laughs> when you think about the the, you know, I guess, age-old fantasy trope of the farm boy becoming the, the chosen one, you, think, you often see this kind of journey played out across, what, like a trilogy of books or five books, if you are David Eddings? Ten books, if you are other yeah. people. Or ten books. And I'm thinking about it, and I'm trying to think of any of those that actually did anything explicit with the idea of the liege, because a lot of them are becoming, it's farm boy becoming king or farm boy becoming all-powerful. And there's a lot of, obviously, of the people who join them along the way, it's always very plot-relevant. But I can't think of anything that do anything very explicit with the idea of worthiness and worthy lord.
2: I, I was just going to spitball something which Alex will then slap me down about. But I wonder if the older fantasy in particular, the farm boy was always a boy? And it would be hard to imagine a competent vassal being a woman, but they have to be because they have to be romance tropes to be that intimate. Actually,
1: this is similar to the point that I was going to make, which is that older fantasy ah. like was incredibly male-dominated, and men just sort of like assume that they're entitled to power rather than interrogating why they are entitled to it and what they owe to the people that
0: they're in charge of. Yeah, it's very much rather, oh, I don't want to be the person who carries the magical sword. Oh, I guess... I will carry the magical sword because now everyone I know is dead. Oh look! I slayed the big dark lord thing. Hurrah! But
2: right now I am king because that's what I get to do. Well, because fantasy kingdoms are meritocracies, Alex. Uh, but, but 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 also, I think that the thing that I was going back to with the difference between glorious good and humble and worthy, humble and worthy, I think is kind of our pattern for a good liege that we all respond to. Is that accurate? Yes, I would say so. Like, I, I think a liege a has to, in part, earn their vassals loyalty through some display of vulnerability. Yes. Yes, I think I would go
0: with that. I was thinking about whether I'm going to argue with humble, per se, as a word. I think it's attractive in some characters and some versions of this trope. But for me, I don't, I don't always need it to be there. I can have someone who's very, a liege who is very confident in their own ability and power. Oh, I think but I think you're right in that there needs to be I a think... little bit of... I guess humbleness, but a little bit of vulnerability in the worthiness of their of themselves as it comes to the vassal. So there always has to be a little bit of gratitude, I suppose, or surprise yep. that the that the vassal half would consider them that worth that worthy.
2: Well, I think I'm also maybe using humble in a slightly different way that I should clarify, which is they are willing to admit that other people have skills that they don't. Like, humble as in, like, they, they know what they can do, perhaps, but they also value what others can do.
1: They know their own limitations, and they know
0: that they can't do everything themselves.
2: Right, because why otherwise have a vassal? Yeah, that,
0: that fits for me, because I was going to say, I really like I, I am very weak for arrogant assholes, and I will always accept <laughs> a lead character who is an arrogant asshole, as long as they also have that element of knowing their own limitations and valuing what the vassal can do for them that they can't do for themselves.
2: Got any favourite arrogant arsehole leisures? Oh, see now,
0: off the top of my head, no, but I'll have to think about it and get back to you. Because otherwise I'll just start talking about Captive Prince again and nobody wants that. Oh,
2: I can mention one of my favourite books that nobody ever reads. Sure. Okay. Have any of you read the Daughter of the Empire trilogy by Jenny Wurtz and Raymond Feist? Yes, I added it to our dot points.
0: <gasps> Yay! You did!
2: But Marla of the Acoma is... Again, a journey of the liege. And certainly in the first book, she is bitterly ruthless. Yeah, and I think part of it is
0: that it's a very much the culture that's shown, is it this idea of that's how you get by and that's how you survive and that's the kind of liege that she's been told her whole life you have to be in order to survive. And she does have, she does have a very clear journey in terms of learning to be vulnerable and learning that she can show grace and kindness and then being surprised when those weaknesses as she would perceive them of being nice and kind actually redouble the strength of her vassals loyalty i
2: just love her so much because she is like a slytherin ruthless murder queen not that murdery like moderately murdery
0: no more murdery than anybody else in the book sure
2: but she's like a female character who gets to be that and I love her so much.
0: And the, well, we, we're going to talk then about when do we see female lieges because obviously Jupiter, Jupiter Jones is a female liege and there's, I think, if you could, again, thinking back to this whole idea of fantasy as traditionally male-dominated, do we see very many female lieges? And this is why we started out by talking about Disney princesses.
2: Yes. Princesses are yes. totally lieges. What well, some of them are, right?
0: Hmm depends on the role in their, in their story This
2: is the one where I get to have an argument with Alex about whether Snow White is a liege uh, <laughs> mm, I mean I guess I'll hear your arguments Macy. She has seven retainers Jesus
1: Christ <laughs>
2: <laughs> I associate
1: retainers so hard with person you want to kiss that like. Mm,
0: blah, blah. Look, I'm pretty sure she does actually kiss them in the movie. Okay. Platonically, but kissing does have this. What does my life become? <laughs>
2: <laughs> anyway, if we were looking for taglines for this episode, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> so if you like kissing lieges, Alex, do you want to talk about Wolf Boy in oh Jupiter my Ascending? God, Wolf Boy is perfect.
1: Wolf Boy played by Channing Tatum jupiter looks deeply into her eyes i love dogs i've always loved dogs he he is like this this guy he's part werewolf he has like jet boots and also wings because why the fuck not he walks around shirtless a lot oh my god yes he does ask me questions about him sure vassal vassal patterns right like the right vass. okay huh. yeah yeah i can are you fanning your? <laughs> i can do okay. this I'm-, I'm mostly like sitting on my hands and just like breathing deeply and staring across the room i can do this i can do this
2: alex you are a professional serious
1: person i'm a very serious person with a very serious podcast of deep literary merit
2: and you're going to talk about winged wolf boy i'm going
1: to talk about winged wolf boys and
2: engineered got a gene 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 geneered?
1: i don't know what it is oh, they didn't gosh. hire a writer <laughs> they didn't have to hire a writer their glitter budget was substantial and they had channing tatum's abs and they had channing tatum so like whatever this movie is not for people who care about things this movie is for people who have an inner 14-year-old girl still living within their hearts. This movie is
2: Star Wars for girls.
1: This movie is Star Wars for girls. This movie is honestly, like, the self-insert fanfiction that you wrote when you were 14 with the beautiful OC with long, shining blonde hair and perfect waves and eyes that were violet with golden sparkles swirling in them. And the prettiest character in the book fell madly in love with her. And this totally didn't happen to me on fanfiction.net back in the day. (laughs) But you were
2: telling us about Wolf Boy.
1: I was telling you about Wolf boy, what was I telling you about Wolf Boy? Oh right, vassal patterns they're great they're they're deep, deep great breath, and awesome, and oh, yes, I can talk about courtly love here so. Courtly love is a system of behaviors which was invented by one single guy, a troubadour in the court of Eleanor of Aquitaine during the Crusades when all the men were off at war and the women decided that they wanted some entertainment and to flatter Eleanor of Aquitaine uh this troubadour came up with basically what was zero wave feminism as I like to call it because it posited what if we treat each other nicely and what if there are like rules to romance and courtship rather than just being like this chaotic thing where women are chattel and don't need to be wooed whatsoever uh so courtly love puts the lady as a symbol of worship like this is when women started being put up put up on pedestals right which turned out to be not such a great idea later on but hey you live and learn and it was better than what they had at the time so the the lady is put up on a pedestal kind of as a stand-in for the virgin mary and that and so you're supposed to view your the lady that is the object of your courtly love with the same kind of chaste devotion that you would have for the virgin mary like it's not supposed to be about sex at all in the traditional term in real life, I don't think that it ever happened that way, but it's a nice story to tell ourselves. And Macy, I think
0: you had a point that you wanted to make about Kane Wolf Boy, uh, and the fact that another character points out to him that he essentially has a hole in his makeup that is the desire to have fealty, the desire to have a law. Yes,
2: so the the great thing with making a movie sans shame is you get to <laughs> do shit, like, say... We have genetically engineered this character with part wolf, part alien wolf DNA, sorry. And so now he needs a pack. Like he just genetically needs a pack. And he was cast out because he's an albino wolf, because it's important to have at least one blonde in your movie. And so he is very sad because he has this gaping loyalty. He has this hole in the center of him that just wants to devote itself to someone. And along comes this little space princess, screaming all the way as he flings her out the top of a hundred-story building with no way to get down. It's okay, he catches her.
0: I do like that particular trope of someone who is fighting their desire to be loyal and fighting the fact that they're starting to have these feelings of fealty, because it takes most of the movie for him to sort of grudgingly come around and admit that yes, she is the perfect princess that he wants to serve. And the reason I mentioned Anastasia at the top of this episode was because I recently saw the stage musical of Anastasia, and as someone who grew up deeply, deeply attached to the animated Anastasia with animated Dimitri, who we all had a crush on, and the amazing music, But what I liked about the musical is that they made a big point of Dimitri as someone who had sort of cast off the idea of bowing and royalty and he makes this thing a throwaway line that he's he's bowed to someone once and he's never doing it again. And you find out later that in the song where they're discovering that Anya actually is Anastasia, that the person he bowed to was the Princess Anastasia, when he was 10 and he was watching her in a parade. And the scene is lovely because it's in the movie, they find out who she is. I think they're having a conversation when they're practicing. They're both sort of the middle of the day. But in this one, it's when he's comforting her after a nightmare. So she's wearing a nightgown and he's sort of wearing sexy boy pajamas. I don't know. Uh, (laughs) But they're having this really vulnerable conversation about memory and the things that they remember. And during it, they discover that they both remember the same scene when she was eight and he was ten and there was a boy at the parade and he bowed to her and then in the end of the song like in this moment of revelation that she is the princess he goes down on one knee and says your highness and she's sort of standing there in her bare feet and her nightgown. And the actress who plays her, Christy Altamari, is really small. So it's like this tiny little princess with this, you know, adoring boy <laughs> kneeling at her feet after saying he would never bow to anyone again. And it's just this amazing explosion of magical princess with faithful night. And it's so satisfying. Say you smoke, Alex. You smoke her. Listen to this. Alex, you have to see this musical. It's so, the glitter budget is immense, I have to say it's like 1920s paris and ridiculousness of like the russian court and then beautiful fields sobbing
2: noises from new jersey or new jersey is Ew, how
0: dare you massachusetts
2: <laughs>
1: it's the east
2: coast is all the same uh, can we talk about person of interest now yes yes because and i had a good segue for this which is we were speaking about kind of characters that have been designed to have this hole in their hearts that is perfectly yeah. shaped for loyalty yes yes my god oh
1: real quick real quick i just remembered that i had another point for the thing about about kane wanting a pack so badly and also like this ties into the greater part of the lord and, and retainer or the Legion vassal which is that it comes back again once again to wanting to have someone who knows you entirely. Yes. And this right, and this also ties into person of interest yes. and the fan fiction that we're talking about, but I'll let Macy finish her her thought first before we get there.
2: Well, I was going to just say there's a lot of fan fiction of person of interest as dear listeners you may be familiar <laughs> given the uh, <laughs> noises Alex makes at the beginning of several of our episodes. <laughs> and there is also a fanfic writer that I don't know if you might have heard of. I don't know if you've heard of this one. She's kind of obscure. She's kind of obscure. I mean, we were reading her before she was cool. That's not true. She was always cool. So Astolat writes a lot of filthy kink. If we're back on our old bullshit once again. We're talking about so Astolat. much so, so much, much. <laughs> Listen, be grateful, dear listeners, that we are not once again talking about Robot Dick, because we could have been. (laughs) That's true. Robot Dick
1: was literally one of the options of fic for this episode. No, it wasn't,
2: because there's no
1: dick in that fic, (laughs) because he's pure. At this point, we're talking about the robot dick,
2: even though there's no robot dick. In <laughs> That's th- true. All right, we're going to reroute. This one is this one is platonic robot dick. It is about the robots, though. Listen, we are this one, the one we are
0: actually supposed to be talking about, has absolutely no robot schlong. <laughs> 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 but look, it, it is very much a feature of Astolat that when we were putting together this episode, I sat down and yes. was like, I could probably come up with a top ten of Astolat fealty fix, in which it is the major theme. And I don't even think there would have been that much overlap of fandoms either. It was amazing. She
1: writes a lot of fealty fic and I really love her for it. So, Also, by the way dear listeners, I know that many of you were around several weeks ago when I was literally screaming on Twitter about the best fanfiction that I had ever read in my life and it is this fanfiction. I told you that you had to wait until episode five. Here it is, episode five.
2: Another episode we're going to talk about later on I'm trolling now, but we will. World building of smut. Yes. In fan fiction, because fan fiction, again, does amazingly creative things with world building and sexy times. And specifically, this fanfic is called Dangerous If Dangerous Unbound. Dangerous If Unbound! <laughs> Dangerous If Unbound! And it is a universe that posits that some people have telepathic abilities and that they are either Doms or subs. And if they are subs, they can kind of pull thoughts from others. And if they're doms, they can dominate and make you do things. And you are differently powerful. And and there's like a whole you... spectrum of strengths as well. Yeah, yeah, there's like a whole, listen, people, we're not going to get into it. The point really? is that Come in back. This, Well, in this universe, you have John. John Reese, the exceedingly dangerous, hyper-efficient, murderful CIA agent. I love him. Is an exceptionally powerful sub. I love him so much. You do, we know. And he is sitting at the auction block, having been cast off by his agency with his only recourse to go to the mines and basically toil there for the rest of his life. And he is picked up and gifted to Harold. Now, Harold is a liege born. Harold has been a liege since he was old enough to read like in canon Harold is the legiest liege to ever lead. yes i mean we're talking like this is canon person of interest by the way is the canon we might have mentioned that yes in
1: canon they are super super legion vassal but it's platonic it is platonic arguably (laughs) depending queer baiting queer baiting queer we're gonna have a whole other episode talking about that so i'm not even going to address it right now
0: because that's we're already 44 minutes into this podcast. <laughs> but it's true that they are they are presented, both John and Harold, as people who are missing something. It's that hole in their life that is actually, that is the shape of some someone or something that is either someone to serve or someone to serve them.
1: On the surface level of this show, yes, they are platonic. And <laughs> they have a dog together. <laughs> Alex
2: is firmly hmm. in tin hat, tin hat. Like. <laughs> they have a
1: dog together, okay? Like, they... Share custody of a dog. They adopt
2: children, that's fair.
0: <sighs> anyway, I can't talk about this. But I was going to say, the, the, the thing with Dangerous If bound is that it takes that very clear dynamic in the show of them both missing something and finding one another very early, and it turns it incredibly concrete. It says that th- this is a yes. world building, says there is definitely someone that you are missing if you are an incredibly powerful sub or a very powerful dom. You are going through life feeling the lack of your other half, who is the person who would perfectly balance you. Yes, key in a lock.
2: And I think that that was something that I wanted to talk about a little bit more was with the difference between loyalty and fealty, because I'm going to use the word unequal here, and then I'll qualify what I mean by that. Fealty is inherently an unequal relationship, whereas loyalty can go both ways. And unequal doesn't mean less valuable in either direction, but it does mean that it's different. There are very clear roles to play. You cannot have a liege and vassal that is the other way around without having fundamentally changed the relationship. And so, in Person of Interest, the canon show, Harold is the mastermind trope who is directing what happens and making the decisions for his vassal, John. And John is kind of a very lost person in the beginning of the show who finds meaning in doing his lord's bidding.
1: And In, I believe in the pilot episode, there's a line at towards the end of the episode where Harold literally says to John, you need a purpose. Yes.
0: And this is my favorite type of vassal is the one who you could basically characterize as a directionless weapon. Yes. So someone who is very, who is dangerous, who is very capable, who can do amazing things, but possibly who has lost their own moral compass or maybe didn't have a moral compass. And what they are looking for and the perfect relationship for them in terms of a fealty relationship is someone who they can absolutely believe in. And then who they can put themselves in that person's hand and in their power and say, use me as a weapon. You decide. Use me as a weapon. You decide where I go because I absolutely trust that the calls that you will make about how to use me will be the right ones. And
2: here is where I get into the question that will start a bit of a fight which is that question of morality and how you choose what you do reflects back to what we talked about in episode two, right? With the primary and secondary houses, the way that the Sorting Hat Chats works, where one Mm. of your personality traits is based on how you decide what is the right thing to do. And I posit that the majority of vassals are loyalists. They are the Slytherins who... Decide what is moral to do based on the people that they are loyal to. I can definitely see where you're coming from, but,
1: and I think that my argument was that I feel like it's kind of a 50-50 split between Slytherin and Gryffindor because they, the Gryffindor vassals are believing in something higher and greater and, and sort of like a, an abstract moral. Oh.
0: Well that's what they are, are they? Slytherin and Gryffindor as the they're the the instinctual primaries. Yeah. The ones that base base their primary morality on a gut instinct. And possibly it is a loyalty to to one person and possibly it's just a loyalty to what they believe. So I think that's sort of you're on the same page Maybe. there.
2: Maybe. I mean I think I can actually understand you better now, Alex, that you're framing it as being um almost they are loyal to a cause or an idea, but their liege is an is an avatar. Exactly, exactly. Yes. Right. Okay. Okay. No, I'm with you now, actually. Yeah, because I was like, no, a Gryffindor would just change allegiance once their moral centre shifts and they'll stop being loyal to their liege and thus they aren't a true vassal. But no, what you say makes sense. Okay, I'm with you. Right, because if the if the liege stops being an avatar,
1: maybe they are not worthy of loyalty anymore. That's... huh. Maybe. And I wouldn't
0: talk about the idea of Hufflepuffs as being able to fit into that same model almost, because if your primary drive is what is best for the community that you care about and for the most people, if you're thinking about the liege, especially as a king, then mm. if you believe truly that this person is the best person to lead and to make the decisions for them, then you would have that sort of loyalty as well. And I think that's a very hear
1: Yes, exactly. Thing,
0: because you're believing that that relationship between the king and the land or whatever it is, is going to be a good one because of the nature of that person. Yes.
2: And I think that this comes to another thing, which is these vassal-liege relationships can sour and they can go bad. Yes. And I know that, Freya, you had some fic set in a universe that had a really a, a, a damaging, not damaging, a poisonous liege-vassal relationship in Kings.
0: Yes, okay. So Kings itself and the fanfic that I wrote are different sides of the fealty coin. So mm-hmm. Kings, the TV show... Uh, which only had a single season of about 12 or 13 episodes, had a lot, because it was a sort of magical realism kind of story based in the Bible story of Saul and David and Jonathan, had a lot to do with this idea of uh, religious hierarchy and the king as the chosen one. But a lot of what happens in the first season is about the fact that King Silas has been given ultimatums by God and being told to watch out for signs that another another better king is coming along and he has to Basically abdicate and step back in favor of God's new chosen king, which is David And what happens is that Silas refuses to do that He refuses to relinquish his power and David starts off as a very loyal soldier You know a bit overwhelmed by coming to the capital very loyal to Silas loyal to the royal family and as he sees what is happening everything starts going wrong in the land. And there is this sense, it's never outright stated, but it's very obvious subtextually that everything is going wrong because Silas has not stepped back and let David start to begin his own journey towards the throne. And so you see the souring of David's fealty towards Silas reflected in the souring of everything that is going on in the country as well. So that's obviously a very explicit way of showing that relationship and the story that I wrote was actually a different fealty relationship that was again about this idea of somebody as a lost and disgruntled weapon who doesn't really know what their best place in the world is and what happens when they start to realise that there is someone who is worthy of their trust and worthy of wielding them and that one's actually a different one between Jack and David as the, the worthy lord but it's also about David's journey to becoming that worthy lord and him fighting against his own destiny, in a sense. But it's all fealty. All fealty all the time.
2: Yeah, all fealty all the way down. And mm-hmm. I think that's one of the things that I really love thinking about and talking about is what does a worthy lord promise to their vassal? Because the vassal gives themselves over to their lord in many ways. They give over decision-making or priorities and moral compass. But what does a lord give the vassal. And I think, Alex, you had this lovely quote from the Society for Creative Anachronism. Yes,
1: yes. So I was in the Society for Creative Anachronism, as you mentioned, which is a, a medieval recreation and recreation group focusing on the years 600 to 1600. And they dress up in pretty clothes, and there's a king and a queen. And so I actually have sworn fealty. I have knelt at the feet of a king and sworn fealty in real life. And The oath that you make to the king and queen varies depending on your rank, but the thing that they say in reply is always the same. And in the Kingdom of Kalantir, where I played, the thing they say in reply is, We accept your fealty freely given and promise never to sacrifice you needlessly, to reward fealty with love, service with honour, and oath-breaking with vengeance.
0: And I think it kind of walks that balance between the old idea of fealty, which to be frank, was probably never entirely freely given. No, you didn't really get a choice. You couldn't really like, be like, well, I'm a serf and I don't really like my king, so I'm just going to not swear. Like, you you didn't have a choice. But
1: isn't the idea of choosing to to serve, like, so lovely and wonderful? But yes, like, it's kind of like communism, where on paper it sounds really good, but in real life it almost never works that way. The only ethical fealty is one that is on paper a two-way street. This, the things that the vassal is giving to their lord are equal to the things that they're getting in return and it's
2: a mutual symbiotic relationship. And I think that to me there is a huge power in loyalty freely given, fealty freely given, and to me that's a magic almost its own, right? Like it's, it's a place to start if you're wanting to build a magic system. There's so many places you could build if you start your world by uh, the gift of your will to someone else being fuel for magic.
0: And it, well, it implies a choice as well. The idea that you could choose from many leisures, but you are choosing this one as being worthy of you, or vice versa. And so it's not that there's just one king and all the serfs swear fealty, it's that intensely interpersonal relationship that you are choosing this person because of their worthiness and because they are the key and the lock for you.
2: I think that that's why when it does flip just a hair further from loyalty to intimacy it's such a powerful emotional romantic trope.
0: Yeah, because of the level of trust that it implies.
2: So let, let's let's take it this way then. Between a liege and their vassal there is a power differential. Yeah. Right? Yes. And we can talk all we want about, uh, what's your phrase, Alex? Um, weaponized submission twinks? Uh, that's, that's Freya's my phrase. phrase. Thank you.
0: Which <laughs> It's one that Freya came up with to toast me. <laughs> I came up with it in the comments of a Google document talking about one of Alex's characters.
2: Yes, he is exceptionally that. <laughs> but my point was you can have a weaponized submission twink, but inherently, the Dom still has power in the
1: relationships. <laughs> Jesus oh my Christ. God. Okay.
2: You're listen, playing? listen. I'm trying. We promised our listeners that this would be a very serious episode full of BDSM talk. Alex, I have nothing to say. We promised. Look, I can up the accent if that will help. Maybe. Please do. Let's try it. Let's see what happens. All right. Okay. Well. Anyway. <laughs> If we are talking about power differentials in relationships, it would behoove us to speak also of dominance and submission. Jesus Christ! Please stop. No, I can't handle this. <laughs> Going back to the normal one. <laughs> no, but but for serious though, in the real world, there are relationships that play with power dynamics in this way, and I'm not. Yes. And- there are parallels with fictional fealty tropes. And in fact, the tentpole fic that we were talking about earlier, Dangerous If Unbound, I would argue is significantly more DS than it is fealty.
1: It's an interesting parallel between the two, because like, as you mentioned a couple minutes ago, in real life, in fealty, you don't get to choose who is in power and you don't get like, you kind of have to. So there is that element, like, paralleling uh the world building in the fic where you are either born with these powers or you're born with these other powers and you
0: don't get to choose and so you have to be in fealty to some but there's also in the in the in the particular fic there is that there is a lot of weight placed on the fact that bonding like actually having a the, I guess, meshing together and solidifying that relationship of a dog and a sub is something that both of them have to agree on.
1: Yeah, there's that mutuality. Like it's something that
0: both of them want throughout the story, but they are resisting, or at least Harold is strongly resisting, and it is a, something that both of them have to be on board for and understand before they say yes and before that relationship becomes the fullest version of itself. And if you're talking about Uh, BDSM and I guess dominance and submission in the real world if it's practiced properly then there is still that sense that there has to be absolute agreement of terms.
1: But at the same time like this is how fealty is kind of supposed to work on paper where like it is something that both parties it's it's reciprocal it's something that each person is getting something equal out of it like the vassal is getting protection and and care and adoration And the lord is getting served. The
2: kind of fealty that we are talking about here, not the actual monarchical medieval fealty. Yes. And I think that that's what Freya was talking about. Kind of pins it down for me. Is the DS uh, dynamics in real life? The submission is a gift. Yes. Right. And loyalty as a vassal to your liege is a gift. And there's this wonderful quote that I was determined to get to from Goblin Emperor of the Vassal Servet being surprised by his liege. Sevet opened his mouth and closed it again. Then, deliberately, he set down his cup, stood up, and with infinite grace prostrated himself beside the table. Sevet stood up again, unruffled and perfect, and said, The Emperor of the Elflands does not apologise to his secretary, and yet, we thank you for doing that which the Emperor does not. So he chooses to give a gift of fealty to his lord, because his lord gave him a gift that he didn't ask for. Yes, I'm yes. just like
0: reading the rest of the quote now and feeling all warm.
2: Yes, I love it so much. And that's the thing, is it makes you feel warm. It makes you feel valued, like this trope in fiction. But
0: at the same time, in fiction, and I guess yes. coming at it from the other side here, in fiction is where you can play with the edges of this trope in a way that you wouldn't in real life. It's where you can come at it mm. from that kind of slightly more, I guess, honestly unbalanced power dynamic because of it's an interesting thing to play around with in fiction. Right. And so you can look at, and so yes, yeah, so some of the things that you would read about and some uses of this trope in fanfic or in other kinds of, you wouldn't necessarily think of as particularly healthy in real life. Right. But when you take that trope all the way to its edge, it is deeply satisfying on a gut level, on an id level. And that's something that fiction can do.
2: Right, and I think that's the the platonic versus non-platonic field.
0: Here. I guess so, but not necessarily. Like, it's not, not When I say taking it all the way to the edge, I don't necessarily okay. mean, and now we're boning. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I mean that you can do things like, have things like an ingrained dominance and submission, Or something where obviously one person is royalty, which is almost never going to come up in real life, (laughs) uh, where there is a much more systemic or much more serious power um, imbalance that both of the characters kind of lean into as part of the dynamic in a way that might be called problematic with a capital P if it was a real person. But that's what fiction is for, is for playing around those edges.
1: Yeah. I have a question. What's this last bullet point where it says someone tried to prevent Macy from talking combinatorics? Combinatorics.
0: I'm assuming that that is code for Macy. Please tell us about combinatorics. What
2: is that? I have never heard. You that You don't word. want me to hit. Hear... Okay. So combinatorics is mostly a mathematical term about combining groups of things. <laughs> Look, we've place. already hit oh.
0: Alex with maths once this week.
2: Look, I did... seriously, Jesus Christ. <laughs>
0: Tell us
1: more about empty sets, Macy. Oh my God. There was an incident in our Slack chat a couple of days ago and like literally Macy was explaining a thing and every five seconds I was screaming at her that she was a witch.
0: It was a very reasonable explanation of girdle's empty set theory I don't know what any of those words of mean I don't it was the incompleteness theorem I
2: don't know what any of those words mean you're <laughs> all witches it was an attempt to explain to Alex the basic fundamentals of integer arithmetic from the po- from the point of view you're of set theory witches. and pianos arithmetic but that you're all <laughs> witches this is witchcraft
0: perfectly normal thing to talk about
2: <laughs> just imagine a black cat with its back arched hissing and its fur stood on end <laughs> And that's Alex right now. So we're going to stop that because we do like her and don't want her to hang up before we're
0: done. But now you've dangled mathematical theory in front of the listeners, Macy. What if some of them are really interested?
2: If some of them are really interested, they need to go read Nine Fox Gambit and A Conservation of Shadows right now and come back to talk to me. Okay, good compromise. Good compromise. At this point in time, the actual meaning of combinatorics in this context is... So, we've been talking a lot about liege-vassal relationships as kind of a line between two individuals, right? Mm-hmm. And the, my question was, can you have, you can obviously, you can have a liege, who has many vassals, like that, like Goblin Emperor is a great example of that. I would, tr- person of interest is not, because the liege imprints upon his vassal, like, a mother duck. oh my God <laughs> Jesus Christ I love that show <laughs> oh oh but but there is also there's another liege vassal pairing in person of interest which is Elias and his childhood friends which is one to many well I don't know like I kind of think that the
1: other auxiliary characters in the show like uh Carter and Fusco are a little bit I mean they're not a vassal to the extent that John is a vassal but they still are under the wing of Harold's protection. They benefit from some
2: of the perks. That's fair. And I think that each of those is an individual relationship though. Like it's it's the it's not a liege having a relationship with a group of vassals together. It is a liege having a relationship with this vassal and that vassal and that one over there. That's correct, yes. And
1: Goblin Emperor
2: is one liege having a relationship with many vassals. Yes, and in some cases with groups of them, mostly because he accidentally becomes, accidentally is noble and kind, and then people just kind of follow him around, as we have stated, Mm -hmm. because we love Maya. How about one (laughs) vassal? Sorry,
0: before we go on, I was just going to say, when you were talking about one liege having a relationship with many vassals, I was about to inject something about it being platonic, and then I thought about Archive of Armor, and I bet somewhere, somewhere on the internet, there is a fic where it is absolutely yes. not. possible actually,
1: i'm I'm thinking of I'm thinking of a specific Goblin Emperor fic right? Yes, now. Yes, and
0: I was just thinking. I'm sure there's one for Goblin Emperor. I haven't looked, I haven't checked, but I bet there is one. Well,
1: we talk about it enough. We, we will link it in the comments. Oh, do we we'll have to? Because then I have to admit what porn I read.
0: Sorry, go on, Macy. <laughs> I was just. I, I don't. We will. We will have a discussion. <laughs> Again, with just randomly cockteasing our audience, maybe. No,
2: we will link several. We will link several explicit Goblin Emperor fanfics, and you will have to try to guess which one Alex reads. Okay, here's the thing, though.
1: <laughs> I've read all of them. <laughs> so that's a problem. Listen, here's the thing. What if they're all terrible? <laughs> I
2: will get, listen, Alex. Until you admitted that. Until you admitted that out of out loud. Okay, out. listen here. I have. For the past month, I have been reading nothing but
1: person of interest fanfiction. Do you think that I've read all of the person of interest fanfiction? Do you think that I... Have you gotten the idea yet that I am obsessive and I get fixated on a thing? So do you think that if I may have gotten fixated on Goblin Emperor in the past, I did go and read literally every fic in the fandom? Listen, friend, I knew that. But until now,
2: our listeners did not.
1: I disagree. I think our listeners absolutely had gotten that impression by now. (laughs)
0: Well, see, I need you to send it to me because I am the opposite of that. I am a picky, picky asshole. And I read almost nothing except when people literally sit me down and say, here, Freya, this thing is for you. You would like this. So I rely on my friends to send me things like this. The
1: thing that I was going to say is that I just want to make a note here to our beautiful, wonderful scribes <laughs> who we love so much. Shout out to you guys. Thanks so much for doing what you do. Last episode macy like in one sentence offhandedly mentioned a naruto fic that was about something or other and apartment
2: complex didn't even give us
1: yeah naruto fic about an apartment complex manager that's literally all she said and the scribes went and found it so that we could link it in the show notes and i know that they're going to do something like that here hi guys please don't do that
2: (laughs) you don't need to do that this episode (laughs) It's fine. We will send a link to the search terms for all... Anyway. Okay, sorry.
0: Now that I have, like, dragged the narrative away, Macy, combinatorics. Go. Combinatorics. Right. So can you have one
2: vassal with multiple lieges? Yes. Mm, I am very troubled by this question.
0: <laughs> I'm just going to talk about Megan Whale well and Turner again, but yes.
1: <laughs> okay, okay, if it's like one vassal being loyal to like a married, a married couple. couple, come on Freya. Yes, it's a king-queen. That would be okay, that would be okay. multiple, really. That's like one liege. No, though. no,
0: because his relationship with them, the fealty he feels towards them is very different. Ah. He, he describes it as being equally strong. But the nature of it and the nature of his admiration is different.
1: In that particular case, I would be okay with it. But in any other case, like, no.
2: I think, I wonder if the the, the lieges need to have some degree of loyalty to each other for that to work well. But I bet you could have a ton of fun playing with this, like in Atomic Blonde, where you're trying to figure out a uh, double A. Actually, I'm thinking about it now, because if you
1: had, instead of like a king, if the, the main characters are a vassal and a lord, then there is a element of... What's the math? Nesting? I think I meant
2: nesting. Transitive. Uh, Transitivity,
1: yes. We're like, Like, the vassal is is loyal to the lord, and the lord is loyal to the king, and so the vassal is therefore also loyal to the king.
2: Yeah, so that was my my next one. Uh, The computer science term for it is nesting. I mean, that's the basics of the feudal system. Yeah, and I think that that makes sense, but then there aren't as much in a way of a relationship with the skip level. And, yeah,
1: like, your relationship with your lord is personal, Mm -hmm. and therefore more special. Hopefully. Like, if they value as... Like, you wouldn't want to kiss the king. You want to kiss your lord. There are a lot of Merlin fix. What about fucking ew? No, not into it.
2: <laughs> no. Jesus, no.
1: Are we talking about like Merlin and what's his name, like the king? King Uther? <laughs>
2: you mean King
1: Giles, Alex? King, king Giles. Giles. I do mean King Giles. Yes, that's exactly right. King Anthony Stewart Head. Mm, hard no on that one. Hard pass. Hard pass. Ours is not to wonder why. Like as beautiful we as we haven't talked about Spock and Kirk. Damn it, that would have been. You're fucking right. We need to talk about that. This episode is going to be really long. I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> We're
2: really sorry, folks. We're really sorry.
1: But we do have to talk about Spock and is Kirk. Is it you or is it long? I haven't seen enough Star Trek. I've only seen like four episodes of Star Trek, so I don't know if I can actually comment on this. I haven't
0: seen any of the original series. I've only seen the reboot movies. No, no,
1: no. No, no. You know what? No. I'm going to head us off at the pass. We do have to end this episode at some point. We can't discuss, unfortunately, every single topic all in the same episode so how about this compromise listeners how about you tell us what you think about the kirk versus spock debate is it fealty is it loyalty what are your thoughts let's open it up for discussion yes so yes we definitely look forward to hearing from our listeners we always do as we always do and i just have to say i'm really proud of all of us today but particularly i'm proud of myself for managing to be coherent and actually say some full sentences
2: did we're very proud thank
1: you thank you (laughs)
0: everybody, thanks for joining us for this episode of Be the Serpent, a podcast of extremely, extremely deep literary merit. We hope you had fun this week. We certainly did. As you can tell by now, we love fealty in all its forms, platonic and decidedly non-platonic, and we all simultaneously want to be the perfect space princess and to find that one liege who is worthy of our extremely awesome service. On the next episode, two weeks hence, on the 11th of April, We'll be discussing a topic extremely close to our hearts, and that is those characters who swing both ways, possibly all the ways, and who are also something of a hot mess. That's right, friends, we will be devoting an entire episode to disaster bisexuals. So, if you have a friend who's into stuff like that, maybe give them a heads up. And in the meantime, feel free to continue the conversation with us. All our individual social media handles are listed on the show's about pages, and we would love to hear from you. Questions? Comments, strong opinions on the fealty versus loyalty distinction as it applies to Kirk and Spock. Contact us at serpentcast at gmail dot com or at serpentcast on Twitter and Tumblr. And by the way, your shoes are super cute.